Thanks, Andrew. It was good to sing Jesus Loves Me. Doesn't that feel good just to sing that song? It's not just for children. Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's my privilege to bring you the word this morning. And my task this morning uh, especially is to address the last topic in our series. You can see around us some of the other topics. This one's called being saved. Okay, being saved is the last two words of Acts 2, 42 through 47. And I want to ask the question, what does it really mean to be saved? All of us have some idea what that means, but I have been asking some of you, and the answers have been surprisingly different, right? There's, it's not a single answer. And I realize that our understanding of what it means to be saved depends on our understanding of what the gospel is. What is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah? So this morning, I want to investigate the consequences of believing one or the other of two different sort of versions of the gospel. Now, they're not contradictory. They're just slightly different in emphasis. And we'll search for the good news about Jesus in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 and see how he presents the message of salvation. And then we'll see how the understanding of Peter's gospel gets worked out in the early church. So our scripture text this morning, it's really the whole chapter 2, but it's a long passage to read, and I'm going to start in 36 for purposes of the sermon. Acts 2, 36 through 47. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this day and forever. Amen. 
So when I think about what it means to be saved, I can't help but refer back to my first year as a Christian. When I was, I was in high school, when I was converted, I went to college, and I started seeing these tracts from Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew, called the Four Spiritual Laws. Does anybody remember the four laws? Four spiritual laws? God loves you and has a plan for your life. All of us sin, and our sin has separated us from God. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for sin, and through him we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. And we must individually receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and then we can know and experience God's love and his plan for our lives. Right, so I, the tract goes on to say that we receive Christ through personal invitation, and it suggests a prayer through which we do that. It emphasizes that faith is simply trust in God and in his word. And much good has been done for God's kingdom and God's work through the use of these tracts, these four laws tracts, and other examples of that sort, the, the navigator's bridge to life and other things like that. There's another well-known evangelistic outfit called Evangelism Explosion. Anybody remember the EE questions? Do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven? And if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? So when I see these things now, 30 years later, maybe a little more than 30, but... I ask myself, is being saved really something that happens by knowing the right answers? Is it about having the right information? What we see in these examples are the version of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is, I'd say, predominant in our time, in our generation. It's true. But it's narrow. It's reduced down to something. Now, it's, there's a purpose in that, right? It makes it very simple and easy to explain. And for evangelistic purposes, that was thought to be desirable. But this is what I call the gospel of sin management. The gospel of sin management presents the good news about Jesus as mainly God's method for dealing with your sin. Your sin problem. But it doesn't really address the rest of your life. It doesn't tell you what God wants to do with the rest of your life. Here's the summary of the four laws um, gospel. They tell you that when you prayed the prayer... Christ came into your life. Your sins were forgiven. You became a child of God and you received eternal life. The only thing that's forward-looking is beginning a great adventure. Everything else is done. You've got your ticket. Now, there are some suggestions for future growth, for Christian growth. Pray, read the Bible, obey God, witness, trust God, allow the Holy Spirit to control your life and join a church. But none of this is really included in the core gospel message. 
These things are presented as suggestions or options for additional growth, if you so desire. So while the gospel of sin management expresses some very important truths, I'm not trying to say that's not right, it's true. It lacks a basis for transformation into Christ-likeness through the power of God in our lives now. And the proof is borne out by the evidence of Christian living around us. Most of those who can recite the gospel of sin management in our country, it appears, do not live substantially differently than those who cannot recite it. That's what the statistics would suggest. Put another way, genuine and meaningful Christ-like transformation occurs in only a tiny fraction of lives lived among those who have placed their trust in Jesus' death on the cross. Because it seems that once we get the ticket to heaven, that's enough for a lot of people. I'm convinced that many have been taught to believe, as I was on my summer mission trip, that this narrow, sin-focused gospel in which Jesus becoming the Lord of my life is merely an option for those who want to go deeper. I want to contrast that version of the gospel with the teaching of Peter in Acts chapter 2, where Peter preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to summarize verses 14 to 35 in two minutes or less. So, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, speaks to the crowd that gathered as God pours out his Holy Spirit on the disciples. They're hearing the gospel in their own languages. They're hearing the preaching in their own languages. And Peter begins by connecting this outpouring of the Holy Spirit to the prophecy of Joel regarding the last days, when God will do amazing signs and wonders before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, according to the prophecy of Joel. So Peter starts with, this is the age of fulfillment. And next he reviews what everybody in Jerusalem knew about Jesus, that he was put to death on the cross unjustly. And he makes it personal by assigning responsibility to everyone who was hearing him. And then he says, God raised Jesus from the dead just as David had, had foreshadowed in Psalm 16. And furthermore, he saw, David saw that one day the Messiah would be exalted to the right hand of God. He would overcome death and he would rule over all. And then he reaches the very climax and the conclusion of his sermon in verse 36 where he says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. Same word. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. Peter's climax and conclusion is Jesus is God and King. That's how he summarizes the good news about Jesus. 
And of course, that's what Lord and Christ means. Lord is the title for God among Jews. It's also the title for the sovereign ruler among the Gentiles. Right? Caesar is Lord, is the, mon- is the slogan in, in Rome. And Christ here is a title, it's not a name. It's the Greek word for the anointed one, just like Messiah is the Jewish term for the anointed one. The anointed one is the king in the Davidic line, the long-awaited king in the Davidic line who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel anoints the child David, the boy David, as king over Israel in a foreshadowing of the messianic anointed one. So what's Peter's good news? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God. That he is God in the flesh as proven by his miracles, signs, and wonders. That he was crucified according to the plan of God but also according to the will of sinful men. But death could not hold him. He was resurrected by the power of God. And he ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's exalted. And he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people and reigns in triumph over his enemies. Now it's similar but it's not quite the same as the message of the four laws, right? So Peter looks out at the crowd and they're, they're cut to the heart, the scripture says. And the, the people ask, brothers, what shall we do? And the next stage, he gives them the response to this news about Jesus, the proper response. This is the response to the gospel of Jesus as king. First is repent, Repent implies a change of heart as well as a change of mind. It implies a confession of sin and the the joining of repentance with baptism in, in this text really points to this renewal and purification from sin. Reconsider your life, your plans, your expectations, your loyalty, your hopes, your fears. Reconsider everything and yield yourself to Jesus as Lord. Enter into life under his authority and his provision. Second, be baptized in the name of Jesus, the anointed one, Jesus the king. Make a clean and open start in this new kind of life, this new allegiance to this new king. Baptism here is the outward symbol of that inward submission and the commitment to Jesus as king. Third, receive the forgiveness of your sins. So only the sovereign God has authority to forgive sins, no one else. But Jesus as king, as Lord, as Messiah has that authority. And it's offered freely to all who will call on the name of the Lord. Fourth, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the new birth, which is new life in Christ. The references 
immediately to Acts chapter 1, 4 through 8, where Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just wait here in Jerusalem, and when I go, I'll give you the gift. You have to distinguish that from the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians and in Romans that Paul talks about. Here, the gift is the Spirit himself given to the believer to minister the Christ benefits of redemption to the believer. It includes the promise of power for the new kind of life in the kingdom. We talked about that a few weeks ago. God does not leave us on our own to live this new kind of life. Fifth, receive the covenant promises of God. The two promises that, that are referred to here have to be understood as you know, receive, being received together. It's the forgiveness of sins and the gift of new life via the Holy Spirit. Both are logically united in applying the redemptive work of Christ to our life. And the promise extends not just to the immediate audience, but also to their children, to their families, to the succeeding generations, and to all who will call on the name of the Lord, echoing back to that uh, prophecy in Joel. And finally, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Peter says, he's echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 and 17, where Jesus talks about this wicked and perverse generation. Because God's people are invited to live in a different world, a different life, one characterized by harmony with God one characterized by righteous living and freedom from the tyranny of evil and sin and death. So the scriptures, I would argue, teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Being saved cannot be reduced to having a ticket to heaven when we die. And the gospel can't be reduced to, as D.A. Carson says, a narrow set of teachings about Jesus and his death and resurrection, which, rightly believed, tipped people into the kingdom. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done, or what God has done in Jesus Christ. There are different expressions of the gospel throughout the scripture because there's a lot of good news. It's more than just one thing. It's more than just sin management. And that's why we always come back to the gospel. We never outgrow the gospel. The form of the gospel that Jesus preached is, is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And I will contend that this version of the gospel contains the elements, some of the elements that other versions are missing. And I think that if we preach this version of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, we will see different results in the life of the Christian church. So I've made a little list of things that make up the good news of the kingdom of God pulled from the New Testament scriptures. Jesus appeared as the prophets foretold. He is the fulfillment of God's eternal plan of salvation. He came from the Father he entered the world in human flesh, the incarnation. He taught the truth about God. That's good news. 
He loved the poor and the downtrodden. He made God's love available. He healed the lame and the sick. He foreshadowed God's power to restore us. He he was crucified, died, and buried for our sins. That's the atonement. That's the center of the gospel of sin management. He rose again to a new kind of life beyond death. He triumphed over Satan, death, and hell, and he rules over all the universe as the king and sovereign. He offers us redemption to eternal life by grace through faith and trust. Justification by grace through faith. That's the gospel of sin management again. It's in here. It's just not enough to really transform us by itself. He grants us the Holy Spirit to give us new birth into eternal life. He also secures our life with God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus invites us to a life of provision and joy and fellowship with God and rest in our striving for righteousness. He adopts us into the family of God. He joins us to his community of called out ones in his church. He delivers his people from slavery to the flesh, to self, to the evil powers of the world. He gives access by the Holy Spirit to the power of the kingdom. He lives with his people, both individually and corporately. Gives grace to live as God's people, as people of the light. He calls us to service in his kingdom work. He restores, heals, and renews his creation through the work of his church. And he promises ultimate justice and redemption and restoration of all things to the God or to the condition which God originally intended in the new heaven and the new earth, where sin and its consequences will no longer weigh upon his people, and he will live with us forever. The gospel of the kingdom of God richly expresses God's purposes and his love for us along with a clear direction for this ongoing life with God. So what did Jesus proclaim? What was his gospel? Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Luke 4, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. The good news that Jesus preached is of the availability of life now in the kingdom of God by placing our confidence in Jesus as Lord of all not placing our confidence in Jesus' death alone, but placing our confidence in Jesus as Lord. And so that's why he says in Matthew 6, 23, or 33, I think it is, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. 
See, that's real guidance for how to live our lives today. It's about submitting to and seeking after God with our whole heart now. Not about holding the ticket to get into heaven in some future day. Going to heaven will take care of itself if we're living in the kingdom of God now. You can count on that. So then, what is it to be saved? Acts 2.47 reports that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So I could say that I have been saved, right? There's a a moment in time when I I can look back. Not everybody has that. I could also say that I am being saved. And I can also say that I will be saved. So there's, it's not, I don't want us to think about this as merely a point in time. I want us to think about it more as a journey. I have an example that, that seems right from immigration. So Haiti is a mess right now. Some of us have know that more than others. You live in Haiti, right? You're a Haitian. You live in poverty under a violent and unjust government. And while you're living there, you receive notice that you've been granted citizenship in the United States. And a promise of resources from the U.S. government to help rebuild your life. When you receive that notice, are you saved? Or are you saved when you actually receive the visa to get on the plane or the ticket to get on the plane or when you get on the flight or when you touch down in the U.S. or when you get an apartment or when you get a job and some income? When are you saved? Or is the whole thing a life of being saved from destruction to joy. The biblical archetype for salvation comes from the Jewish people living in Egypt under slavery. Under Moses, we're told, God delivered them from slavery. But when were they saved? Were they saved when Moses said, we're going to be leaving? Or when they passed through the Red Sea or when they were wandering in the desert or when they saw the promised land or when they entered the promised land a generation later or when they finally lived in peace under the Davidic kingdom or Solomon's kingdom. All of that is part of the deliverance of God for his people. So I want us to think of salvation both as an event and as a life with God. In the same way that marriage is both an event and a life. There's a beginning, but like being married, being saved is an ongoing relationship that requires attention and effort. Being saved is living a new life with Christ in God's kingdom. That's what I want you to 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 consider. It's not a one-time event. It's not having your ticket. It's living a new life. And that's the gospel. If we can present the gospel as a new life with Christ in his kingdom, then there's a lot more that goes along with that than there is with getting your ticket to heaven. 
So this new birth, right, being born again, that reestablishes our contact with the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom as if we're passing over the border of a new country. But where you go once you cross over that border depends on what you understand to be the purpose of coming to that country. The gospel of the kingdom tells us what the purposes are. We're both saved to things and we're saved from things. Galatians 1.14 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So we're saved from God's wrath towards sin. We're saved from spiritual death. We're saved from slavery to sin and self and flesh. We're saved from slavery to the powers of evil. We're saved from the burdens of human life and the world. And we're saved to new life with God, to grace and peace and love from God, to God's presence, provision, and power as king, to a life of purposeful service under God's kingdom, to access to the Holy Spirit for power for life, to belonging to God's called-out people, the church, to a life of transformation towards Christ-like righteousness, towards hope. We're saved to a, a life of hope for justice, ultimately, and hope for a future renewal with a new heavens and a new earth. So how does this view of salvation get worked out in the early church? I want to bring this thing home to Acts 2, 42 through 47 with two concluding points. First, salvation, according to the gospel of the kingdom, gets worked out in community. Everything in this passage is plural. In our Western individualism, it tends to emphasize the individual's private prayer life, private personal response to the gospel message. And many in our culture today will claim that they have a personal relationship to Jesus and have no interest in the church. This just can't be. Because the gospel of the kingdom calls us to belong to and to serve one another within the body of Christ and to make room for all who will call on the name of the Lord. So salvation gets worked out in community. Second, salvation gets worked out in ordinary ways. Right? The good news that Peter preached and that these new believers accepted led to a new kind of life for them. But it was characterized by devotion to really ordinary things, to the teaching of the apostles, to the scriptures, the Hebrew Bible at the time, to fellowship with one another, to the communion meal, to prayer. Everybody could do these things. You didn't have to be a specialist. You didn't have to be a priest. You didn't have to be a religious expert. These are things that everybody can do. They ate meals together. They met together. They rejoiced with one another. They worshiped God, praised God together. These are things that all of us can do. It's ordinary life. We are formed into the kingdom community of God by intentionally, repeatedly, and together seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.
and through these ordinary means that you see on the banners on the stage, that's how we become God's kingdom people. By repeatedly, intentionally, and together seeking his kingdom through these means. People of New Life Church, we are doing these things. Over the past 19 weeks, we have put into practice some of what we're learning in this passage. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to prayer and to the breaking of bread. We're rejoicing in the good news, but we're also stretching one another in some ways. We are practicing a style of worship and study of God's word where everyone participates and encourages one another. We're calling for a deeper participation in the life of the body through hospitality and through service to one another in our community. The body of Christ at New Life Church, in my opinion, is grateful and joyous and unified in some very beautiful ways. This is our kingdom calling. May God give us grace to live it out. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, our God, God of heaven and earth, we rejoice in the good things that you are doing. We rejoice in the good news of what you have done in Jesus Christ for us and in us. Jesus, you are our king, and we are your people. Spirit of God, fill us and empower us to live this life. Lead us into righteousness. Lead us into your kingdom life. We pray all this in the name of Christ our Savior and all God's people say, amen.